gentlemen, welcome back to podcastjuice.net. My name is Michael Dean, and you are listening to the podcast on Prince. And we are here once again. We got a full house of people. So I want to make sure I introduce everyone and let's get these things started. First off, we have my friend, my brother, Big Sexy in Saxer. How are you? I'm doing well. Going a little stir crazy with the lockdown, but hanging in there. All right. All right. We're getting through it. Also joining us today, we have a couple of special guests uh, back. Uh, he was just here a couple of shows ago. Mr. Scotty Baldwin, sir, how are you? I'm well, sir. How are you? I'm doing uh, as good as can be, you know, uh, trying to keep a positive spin on things. Um, also joining us is another heavyweight. He's been on the show before. Uh, I consider this this young man uh, a, a virtual mentor of mine, Mr. Dave Hampton, sir. How are you? I'm fine. I've got an f- excellent microphone now, so everybody can kind of hear what I actually sound like. <laughs> All right. Well, um, today we're going to get into a few different things. But uh, the first thing I wanted to really start off with is, a, you know, us giving up our respects uh, to Bill Weathers uh, recently passed, uh, you know, one of the icons, uh, music in general. Uh, some, you know, his songs, I know for some of you younger listeners, the name may not catch you. But trust me, when you hear certain songs, you, they're just a part of your psyche. You've always heard these songs uh, in your uh, uh, in your peripheral. I can't even speak right now. But um, I didn't even know this at the time. But Dave actually had a relationship with Mr. Weathers, and I was just hoping that you'd be able to speak on him a little bit uh, and bring some light uh, to him. Yeah, man, he was a really cool person in in my life and as many other people's as well. I got a chance to meet him back in uh, <clears throat> the late 90s. I was working with Marcus Miller and uh, he happened to come by and he was just he was just a guy who came by to while we were building the studio and was asking me a lot of questions. And then it dawned on me when I finally introduced him. Oh, this this guy in his van, it just pulled up is bill withers but he was you know yeah he hadn't been in the business and he he just was a friend and he just pulled in and was seeing what was going on and he was asking me questions so we we kind of struck a friendship and uh he i come to find out he had built a lot of the studios in his home in his homes Hmm. and he was an excellent craftsman he he was really uh was a crafted mason he could do anything with tiles and built most of his uh furniture and um, so we we just struck up a friendship. We would go ride around in his van and I'd take him to all the places where I get different different kinds of materials for studios and just, you know, spent spent a good deal of time together. And then he, he and his wife were really cool. They would offer up advice when uh, I needed some advice sometimes just because they're older, experienced people. And. I didn't have anybody around at a time when I lost my mom where I could like really ask them, Hey, this is a lot, you know, how do you make a decision like this, you know, mm-hmm. or, or just different things responsible. And they really, you know, always had common sense answers for me, which you need sometimes when that happens, like when you in your life, when you lose your parent or parents and you are actually on earth alone because that's how you feel when all your parents are gone. Um, you you know, you need sometimes people who are older who've got some kind of a common sense, man. Common sense is something that's really valuable, man. 
<laughs> and when he would talk, he had a way of talking to you and talking at you that if he was he was saying something, it was like dude, speaking directly to your either what you needed to hear or what you were running from. So mm-hmm. it was good. And he consequently, you know, he did a lot uh, when when I had my brought my son around. You know, he, he said a lot of things to my son. Sometimes when you have kids, your kids don't listen to you. They listen to your friends. Right. <laughs> right. And uh, he was able to get through to my son where where I couldn't. So I appreciated that and, and everything else. But we had we had started about two years ago. Uh, I bumped into him at, at Pet Boys and uh he just said, hey, man, you got to come by and see the new place. Um, you know, come on by. I, I, I got something I want to say and think you need to help me get this new studio together. And I didn't know they had moved. So went by the house and we started on this journey to, to build the studio, which we had just completed. I think, Scotty, I took you by there, right? When you were yes, out here. Yes. And uh, one of the last things I did, um, we actually got through, we were working on some songs that he'd written when he left the business. So he was still a prolific writer. So that's what we were in the midst of doing, working on those and his daughter is an artist. So we were working on songs for her. And uh, one of the last things he asked me to do though, was he asked me to get him a two inch machine, oh. uh, 24 track, Wow, you know, so I wow. hunted and hunted and hunted and hunted. I finally found a 24 track. So I got the 24 track, got it in there, did maintenance on it, got it all up to shape. But I ran the serial number, and you'll never guess whose 24 track it used to be. <laughs> I don't it, know. So I said, wow, this is a long way to come back home. Because when you think about it, Teddy's biggest hit was using a sample of Bill's. And I'm sorry, I don't cut you off. And, uh, I, I didn't hear what you said. Who was I didn't hear it? who you said. Say yeah. it again. Oh, Teddy, the machine belonged to Teddy Riley. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> so oh. when when you think about it, when you think about the, the, the duality of this, all this many years where Bill says, hey, get me a two-inch machine. Of all the people <laughs> I would find a two-inch machine, you know, for it to be Teddy Riley's machine, that's, that's full circle because uh-huh. – the songs, probably one of the biggest songs that afforded Teddy the ability to have that machine yeah, no was the sample he took off of Bill, right? <laughs> yeah, no diggity. Yeah. <laughs> no diggity, right? So, so uh, you know, I, I was just like, man, this is a really good 24 track with low hours. You know, how does this happen? So I ran the thing and found out it was his. So, you know, I, I thought that was uh, really one of those things that happens where you go, wow, this is, this is a special moment. Because I, I know Teddy as well. But it was just it was just cool. So um, we we actually were able before he passed, we were able to get him in the studio. Another engineer I know, uh, this Scotty you knows Dave Rideau and I started working with the the catalog and stuff. And uh, he had gone, been able to sit down and actually edit some songs that he hadn't been in front of in years, you know. And I think the first song he did it took probably two hours for him to mm-hmm. from start to finish just edit it up. Because you got to realize these songs were done probably over 15, 20 years ago. So they had dated sounds on them. So we were just going through editing and doing stuff. But, you know, probably one of these other calls uh, will get Dave Rideau on here. And he'd be a good person to talk to, too, because yeah. it was just a good experience all the way around just to sit down with him. And, and he didn't he had his same ear where he could pick out things and note that lose that lose that and just it was amazing it was amazing to watch his musical wow. skills
skill and that fact that he still had it. He still had it, you know, and he would sit and he would watch it before you go in the studio. He would grab you and he say, well, before we go in here and you show me all this stuff, you come in my office. I'm going to tell you what I know. <laughs> he sounds like a grandfather <laughs> so type would, of older cat. Oh, that, very yeah. much so. Very much so, man. Mm-hmm. And, and so he would go in there, but you would go in there and probably it might be two, three, four hours. Yeah, yeah. And you would you would be watching uh, some of the YouTube stuff that he was put. He loved his iPad because he could pull up the music that he enjoyed on the iPad. So he was very aware of new artists. He was very aware of a lot of the new things that were going on in music. And that's why I think he had felt like he had something to say, because um, I think he's felt like that ever since he's his induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Okay. You know, that that he's watches and he sees what's going on. And, you know, he's he's probably one of the kings of message music. So we're really yeah. in a time where we need that. You know, yeah. And yeah, just re- for yeah. some of the people who don't know, like some of the songs you like, lean on me, just think oh, of how yeah. ubiquitous that song is. And uh, that's 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 Bill Weathers. You know, ain't no yeah. sunshine. Grandma's uh, hands. Grandma's you know, yeah. Lovely Harlem. day. Yeah. Harlem. Yeah. Harlem. yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Man. yeah. So his his this, DNA yeah. running through a Ooh. lot of music. And when you brought up Teddy, that that would be a headbuster moment when you found out that that was Teddy. Was <laughs> oh, like, it was. <laughs> I was like, I was like, you're not going to believe this, you know, right. because because, you know, of course, in Bill's mind, you know, that was nothing but a more of an authorization of the use of sample. Right. Mm-hmm. So but to to me, who generationally I've worked with Teddy as well. So I'm like, wow, this is full circle, you know, right. but to him, he's just OK, cool. I asked for a 24 and now I got a 24, you know, so it's it's that's it's amazing. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, a guy like that, um, like I said, because I had I knew of him, but I think the song that I really the first time I paid attention to him, his music, aside from knowing Lean On Me and Ain't No Sunshine, because they were always there was uh I have to give it up to rap and forte uh, he he mm. had a song that samples lovely day and that was how I first really oh, okay. sat down and I was like I know he didn't create this 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 shit is dope like what is it and then I <laughs> went back and I was like oh I remember hearing this as a child and and then yeah. just realizing like lean on me club nouveau was a big thing oh, yeah. you know and so his, his his DNA just runs through so many Everything. different eras of music it's just crazy yeah. yeah. Well, man, yeah. thank you for sharing that with us. No problem. Uh, no problem. You know, be looking forward though. His daughter's name is Corey Withers, okay. and she has stuff that that we've worked on that's going to be coming out, and uh, some of the other stuff as well. Nice, nice. Now um, to shift gears a, a second here, Scotty. I know we recently you're recently on the show, and I'm just curious. I don't get to ask this a lot from people that are on the show, but what was like. Uh, in your opinion, what was the feedback and reaction to your oh. appearance? <laughs> well, podcast? it's it's always um, it's always there's always going to be a mixed uh, reaction to it. Most of it's positive. Um, there are some people that are um, uh, overwhelmingly people are like finding out information that they haven't had a chance to take in over the course of. Uh, that that their favorite artist's career, and they like that inside thing. And I always um, try and speak of Prince in a um, in a respectful manner because our relationship was long and it was respectful of one another. Um, uh, there are, of course, sometimes people don't like to hear the truth, or they they um, as somebody told me once they they 
they're on, you know, people are on the outside, we were on the inside. So we, it, it's from an opera, operational standpoint, we make decisions and do things from the inside that once looked at at the outside is, it doesn't seem to make sense. But, um, but I mean, people, people in general, I think have been very, um, they've been really lovely and, and the reception to not just interviews that I've done with you or, um, or Dave has done, but in general, people like sh the sharing of the, um, of information. And, um, I don't think anybody's gone to, I even listened to your last episode and, and I think, um, when, people want to hear people's real reactions and real opinions. I think that's, uh, that comes through and certainly in the way that I uh, try and uh, be interviewed is just through being, being honest and being objective about uh, my experience because the bottom line is no one can curate your experience with the subject that's in your life. No one can come mm -hmm. back and revise my experience with Prince or Prince's with mine. It's mine to curate. And as long as you stay honest and truthful about those things, then, um, and I think Dave, you probably taught me that, that you can't, you can't, uh, you can't curate someone else's experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's your story. I mean, it, it, inevitably, you know, if people don't like you and there's always going to be some people that don't like you or they don't like something that's that that's on them. That's on them. And it's, and, you know, we're, when we take the time to even share or answer a question, we're trying to do it in lieu of everything that we are aware of. Like, we are aware that there's a lot of people who won't say anything. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that don't answer questions. And so we try and at least give some kind of answers that give you some insight as to who he was and can really answer something that's meaningful about him so it's not misunderstood. So, I mean, it's all in the spirit of trying to to bring everybody together, you know, uh, but there's always going to be those people who are, who are just there to, uh, you know, Hey, I don't like him. He, he always comes off like this and they, they don't understand everything, but they all want to just, you know, barf up. And, uh, I get it. I get it. But, uh, you know, that, we, only, we only mean well. And spe spe specifically, specifically the, um, people have to, also understand that Prince was an, a person, not just an artist, but he was a person that when, when people understood that almost everything he did was applicable to another subject, when you're around people of that, that, that are vibrating at that level, you have to really be aware and pay attention because they're always teaching you another thing. There's always something going. And I don't know whether he was... I really ultimately never know whether he was cognizant of that or not, but he just was always teaching. He was always in the mode of teaching. And if you understood that interaction with him, it could be, it was applicable to many other things. I learned a ton from Prince directly. I learned just as much from the inference of another interaction that was applied to some other artist or some other situation. Um, I think David probably agree. Does it ever like, and I wonder too, for both of you guys, um, from sort of being uh, more in the background or behind the scenes, I should say, and now, you know, sort of coming out and speaking, is there any apprehensiveness of sharing stories because of how, you know, certain people could take it? Is that maybe why certain people don't want to talk? They just don't want to deal. They don't want to smoke or, you know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I love your expressions, man. Uh, 
You want to answer, Scotty? Because I, I love I'd love to answer to the smoke portion of the question. No, you go answer the smoke. <laughs> <laughs> well, as far as the smoke, Michael Dean, I think we are we are four years removed from this situation now. And and uh, you know, I believe if you go back to our interviews early on, one of the points was we consistently made was that, you know, there's going to be time that goes on. We'll be years from now. We'll be in another place. Well, we're in another place right now. Mm-hmm. We're in a, we're in an extreme time like right now in another place. And so we have to put all these things in perspective as much as we love Prince, as much as we care about the music, we've got to put into perspective everything that's going on right now. And when it comes to even this situation, you know, there might be things that we all want to see here and, and we want the smoke to clear. Right. We, we want to yeah, we, we want to know what happened, but we might never see that great panel with all the mystery people. You know, oh, let's get, you know, the Phaedras and let's get the Vans and let's get the Kirks to sit on the stage and just tell us the real deal. Well, this ain't Donahue and that shit might never happen. Right. So we got to accept that. We got to accept it. And we got to accept the fact that in 2020, we're dealing with a virus that is threatening people's lives. And we got to prioritize and put our houses in order so that we can still be alive to sustain ourselves. Doesn't mean Prince gets put to the back burner by far. Prince music gets played every day in houses all over. Gets played in my house because I love the music. I love the memories. Makes me feel good. But I think we have to put it in perspective because there are a lot bigger things that we have to concern ourselves with now. And I, in light of what we all trying to get and talk about, and, and like we'll talk about some of it later with the, because uh, I really love the podcast, the, the last one you had that was talking about the state of the estate. I think that part of that hope is that when things come out of this, things will be a little bit more in order. When we get back to gathering as large numbers of people, things will get in orderly fashion, you know, and part of things being in orderly fashion is going to be about moving on. It's not going to be about constantly wanting to solve the, the mystery of the week and wrap up the show. You know, if we were watching an episode of Columbo, it takes an hour for him to, to tell you who did it. Mm-hmm. Right. This shit don't take no hour. But when you sit down and you examine all the stuff, sometimes it's easy to see. It might not take an hour, but I can narrow it down to about four or five motherfuckers. Right. that I seriously want to break over the coals, you know, and that's, and that's part of the smoke. That's part of the unsaid things that people just don't want to talk about. They don't want to say it. And, you know, if somebody says, Ooh, he was being mean. He said these things. Yeah. I'm not being mean. I'm just being factual. This is just, this is what, what, what happens, but we've got all have to move on because part of, part of Princeton is moving on to the things that matter and the things that are new. Look for anybody who had, any kind of motives that were negative around him, if, if that's what the case was, it didn't work out for them. Mm. You think it worked out for them? Did any of you think it worked out for them? If whoever you might think it was, be it family, be it lawyer, be it whoever you think it was, do you think it really worked out? Yeah, I, I can't answer that question. I don't, I don't know. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I don't think the, it worked out. <laughs> I don't think it worked out. It may not have worked out for them, but we're still dealing with, right? You know the the effects of that, those so. actions, and I think it, four years out, 
I just I wish we could move beyond it. I, when I say move beyond it, I, I wish we could just answer the questions right. and get it out right. there so we can push forward on it. Because And there's nothing wrong with wanting answers to questions. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with answer, getting one answer to questions. I just think that what ends up happening is sometimes um, history moves the dial. You know, mm-hmm. And right now in, in all of our lives, the, the history of our, our country and our health and welfare has moved the dial on everything. You guys have to, to think this country is stopped. We're all at home. We're all confined inside. The The business that Scotty and I are in primarily is is focused on large gatherings to for for um, disposable income and personal enjoyment. I want to ask you something about that since you brought that. You, you know, made me think of something in light of we're seeing a lot of artists really no matter what sort of craft they do, whether it's a musician, comedian, actor, they're taking, starting to, uh, you know, use online platforms to try and do something. Uh, do you think that this, you know, once we, once hopefully things get back to, to normal, would this thing maybe be more of a catalyst to push people to say, Hey, you know what? People are, can accept me at home or, doing this sort of distance type of entertaining thing. Do you think that that this may open a door a little bit more for that? to be? I think absolutely. Um, Because what people are doing now, the artists, the uh, the aforementioned artists and musicians and, and entertainers they're right now, they're just rooting. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to root out different ways of connecting with their fan base and they're bored and they're just trying to remain um, uh, active. Um, Nobody is really, figured out a way in the last four weeks to monetize all of this stuff. Um, but believe me, they're going to come up with ways of, of, uh, of monetization of, of these, uh, the directions in which we've gone. Um, uh, very, very, uh, one example is my wife, um, is involved with a, uh, she's in theater and opera and she did a, a, a play reading by a playwright who they do, they want to work on the draft of their play. So they hire a bunch of actors to do a table read. And that's always done in person here in Minneapolis. Well, they did it the first time they did it by Zoom because out of necessity. Mm -hmm. Afterward, they said, hey, this really works. We don't really need to have people come in and get all their schedules in order and come in and do a play reading around a table. We can just do this from one actor can be in New York, one can be in Wichita, the other one in Minneapolis. And so I think in, in small ways like that, it's going to change no matter what. And also with the relaxed uh, uh, requirements that um, equity has put on their actors. And um, I mean, when you're an actor in a TV show or in a play, especially, you can't even get barely get a promotional photo of yourself that you can use because the, the rules are so stringent. Equity has released and relaxed their rules a lot so that you can stream live stream plays or you can put plays on on your website that have been uh, cataloged for archival purposes. There are all sorts of revenue streams will come out of this. It's just going to take time to do that. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I, I feel like uh, a lot of the mainstream uh, acts or artists are sort of seeing what a lot of the YouTubers and even some of the podcasters have been doing. Now they realize like, oh, shit, I don't need these and we can go directly to these customers mm-hmm. and it, the production value isn't exactly like, you know, primetime TV looking and all that, but it gets damn near close, but people will accept quality 
value type content that they feel is sincere. And so I'd be very curious to see if this really jump starts. I, I think what you're looking at too, and and to bring it back around to this, what this podcast is about, you're you're watching a widening version of the Prince Effect, right? Mm. Because he was at this place before anybody else was at this place, right. dealing with his fan base and mm. selling direct to the community that enjoyed him. So I think on a very uh, a very loose thing, what you're seeing now when you watch John Legend do a concert from his living room, when you watch everybody use the the electronic means that we now have to engage socially and capture market share when the market is closed, right? Mm -hmm. You're, you're watching people apply the same mentality that he had, which is as an independent, you should be able to control your own fate and talk to your own people, make that connection and do what you need to do with your audience, regardless of whatever big structures are at play meaning major record companies, major this, major that. You know, I can tell you right now, when John Legend did that first concert, what it did, it neutralized a lot of meetings I had had maybe this, the weeks before. I'd met with a lot of different companies that were all saying, ooh, we're streaming, we're streaming, we're streaming. And when you get into these meetings and companies want to do streaming deals because somebody you represent has content or something, you – you need to understand that no, a lot of these people who are talking it have never done it. They've never done a stream that actually ends up at a monetized place. They just want to talk about cutting a deal because they see the potential for a lot of content to be delivered at once. And they're, they're talking about some place they've never been. And when John Legend did a concert from his living room and then somebody followed him the next week and then all of a sudden you had everybody doing it within a matter of weeks – it now has changed because now we've proven it can be done and you can speak directly to your audience. You know, yeah. I think it's amazing. And I think it, it, it puts things in order because you can't have a lot of companies that are always waiting to own the doorway. You have to have the, the rebels that go out ahead of time and say, okay, cool. I can do this now for my living room. And that's necessary. That's it's necessary. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I mean, it's something I've always believed in. And uh, I, to me, I just equate it to like the attitude of early hip hop where it's like, OK, we don't have access to instruments. Uh, we didn't learn how to play. We didn't we couldn't use them. But that ain't going to stop us from doing our music. So let's take them turntables and we're going to make something out of this and we'll go to the park. And this to me is the same way. Oh, OK. These other platforms, they don't allow us in here. Cool. We're going to use this YouTube or we're going to use this IG. We're going to make a, you know, I like what D-Nice did. We're going to make a club. We're going to do it regardless, you know. So that's interesting, yeah, we're interesting to watch. Um, I'm a big believer in the, in the value for value model, mm. which is essentially when you enjoy something and you watch a bunch of YouTube or you watch uh, or listen to a bunch of podcasts, especially, um, you pay that person what you can based mm -hmm. on your level you based on your enjoyment i know you're up uh you're on patreon right michael right yep uh, yeah and so um so you, you you go to patreon and then you can pay for if you get enjoyment out of something you say well i can afford three bucks a month or five bucks a month or a dollar a month or whatever it is and that sort of supports that person and i think if you get enough people doing that someone could legitimately make a living 
doing that and they're just getting paid what other people feel they should be paid, which is a very, that's an honorable thing to do, I think. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Um, why don't I do an update of sorts to the last episode? It was like everybody gets paid but you. And we were talking about, you know, the Prince Estate and the heirs. And there had been some news stories that came out about uh, the Prince Estate not being able to pay the heirs for services and, and things of that nature. And since that, we've been getting a lot of feedback, feedback from people. People have been sending us information, links and different things and uh, links to some of the court records and stuff. And so I know Big Sexy's had a little bit of time to, to, to sift through some of that. So I uh, wanted to open it up and, you know, if you could kind of give us an update a little bit on that, what you've learned so far. Yeah, definitely. Um, where it stood off on our show last time about this, there was concern about the heirs not getting paid while all the other people are getting paid, and in some cases, millions of dollars. And like you said, we've been provided with information on this. Uh, there was a filing from Sharon, Noreen, and I forget the, I believe John. Another John, I believe, I could be wrong. Uh, they petitioned the court to get paid, saying they have participated in a lot of events and have not been getting paid. The personal, repre personal representative of the state is not paying them, and they want court intervention. Now, the estate responded, and what the young people say nowadays is the estate brought receipts with them. <laughs> the estate said, hold on a minute. One, we're in the middle of this whole tax evaluation thing, so if the personal response, if the personal representative does pay you guys, it exposes the estate to a possible tax liability because it hasn't been evaluated yet accurately. That's problem one. Problem two is anytime you have an estate or a trust like this, your people who are maintaining it, they're going to get paid because it goes to the direct operation and maintenance of the trust. So those cats are going to get paid. Now, the heirs are saying, well, they've been doing this consulting, been involved in these events and those events, and not getting have not been getting paid in my hand right now. And some of this has been redacted, but the estate says, "Look, you guys had opportunities to take money from this source, from that source. You had opportunity to do this consulting to get paid X dollars, which none of you have done. And as far as being." present at all these meetings you guys have been coming to the meetings you've been calling in by phone and as far as travel expenses all the travel expenses to things like the grammy night and the premiere of blackish the prince thing premiere of blackish they flew you guys out there for that and they're and they're giving them opportunities information saying look you can do this with this group air saying no we can do this with that group and they're going to pay you X dollars. Air saying no. So one thing in, and this word was mentioned earlier, in equity, there is a legal axiom that says one who seeks equity must do equity. And in any type of contract damages situation, the party claiming damages has a duty to mitigate those damages which means you just can't sit on your hands and let things get worse. And that appears to be what the heirs 
are doing according to this you know, response by the estate because they've been given several opportunities to go ahead and participate in other things alongside and with the estate and get paid from other sources, but they're not doing it. So on one hand, they're saying we're not getting paid and the estate's coming right back saying you can get paid, but you're not taking advantage of these opportunities. That's interesting. So what are you in your sort of analysis or expertise opinion, expert opinion, what do you think should be the course of action then? Or how do we figure this out? Is it just a matter of waiting to things are valued properly in the tax purposes or? or well, that's going to wrap up soon regardless. Okay, that's going to end. You know, they're going to get that thing evaluated and set up and all that. But the problem is, and again, I'm not privy to any of these conversations, but it sounds like the heirs either are stubborn or get or are getting bad information. Because if anyone says to you, look, if you contact so-and-so, you can consult with them and they're going to pay you X dollars. And you say no? No, 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 no. Something's wrong here. And also the heirs are concerned about primary wave coming in because they already purchased the share from Tyka, and 90% of the share from, I believe his name was Albert, who passed away. So the primary wave is there. And they're looking to, you know, do some things here. If And I said this on our show about it. If the heirs would just come together and say, look, this belongs to us. We need to do what we need to do to make it work. And whoever's in their ear is not, is not taking their best interest at heart here. Now and and so they, I would imagine they're hiring their own lawyers, right? Or oh, they yes. have people oh, representing yes. them, and which obviously they're going to rack up a bill with these lawyers. And what happens when that? Okay, so that bill with that lawyer is this amount, but you don't really have that money coming in. The reason why I got with you was to that we could sort of wrestle some control, and that that didn't work. But I still need to get my invoice paid, <laughs> like. At this point, they just keep going into personal debt. And then, like, they, the rescue is to sell it off to somebody like a primary wave or somebody who says, hey, I can just relieve you of this stress, give you some money in your pocket, but, but let me get your shares. Well, the problem is a lot of these, these things that they've hired these other attorneys to do, these other attorneys have put liens on their interest in the property. So if, they, if primary wave does come in, and start, you know, throwing money around, it's going to go to those lawyers first. You know, the heirs, and again, I'm not trying to to bag on anybody, but the heirs are really mismanaging this thing. They really are. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people were near their flow and said, okay, well, there's been valued at X million. Where's mine? It doesn't work that way. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to interject because... Uh, some of this goes back to some early conversations that we had at some phone calls with you and, and as well as Funkenberry. Scotty, you remember. Um, yeah. You know, th this thing goes all the way back to when he first passed and, and all of a sudden we had the two advisors then uh, giving estimates in stories in publications as to what the value of the estate was and they were we were pre-valuing something that whose value had not been determined so now we have about three years of mismanaged activity 
that is based on evaluations that still weren't complete, that still aren't complete to this day. How can you evaluate something that's in motion and is steadily changing value all the time? By the time the deal was cut that allowed Graceland to go in and set up a museum, do we even know that the journey through the Graceland time having the museum created a profit center for them? Or was it just something that kept it going? We don't we don't know any of that and we're outsiders, but a lot of those decisions were made in the course of other people telling their truth about, oh, this is going to be the way to resolve this rather than the normal way to resolve it, which was all heirs get one representative who is an estate attorney, not an entertainment and sports attorney, not a branding attorney, not all these other people that were, were gone out and gotten, but being of one accord and dealing with it the way you do when you properly create an estate plan in a situation like this will be there will or no will. It was too it was too big. There, there's again, this gets into a slippery slope because then we get into a lot of things that go all the way back to the quickest 24 hour cremation I've ever seen in the history of dead people. Mm. So I'm not going to get into that, but I'll just say that it's a lot of it is just right now. Yeah, they've gotten a lot of bad advice. They've gotten a lot of bad advice. And I think and 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 just before anybody writes into the Michael Dean show and says, well, who is he but an engineer to sit up here and talk shit? What I'm going to do is for the hour and 10 minutes that we're on, I'm going to take a portion of my fees that I charge for my services and I'm going to write a check and I'm going to send it to Paisley Park and it's called for the family. So I'm, I'm right now paying money just because I'm talking about their situation. Okay. <laughs> so I don't want to have anybody talk any shit about how dare I say it because you didn't pull out your checkbook. And I think if you want to be literal about it, everybody who has made a wage mm. from the janitor to the anybody at Paisley Park while it was a museum, a conversion process to anybody who's working on the, the records and the music. If there is no plan, then each one of those individuals, when they get their check, should write out a check and say, here's something for the family. And just send it into the family if you really want to be literal about it, because you're getting your money before they get their money. Hmm. And and the, and the reason is, yes, we can go to the law and say, well, you know, legally, they just don't have it together. So that's just what happens. No, we're talking something that's huge here where they've been misguided by a lot of people who supposedly were guides. Right. Mm hmm. So if you never had experience with large sums of money like this and you never had experience with all this stuff, but all of a sudden when something happens, you're looking upon all these experienced people who parachute in and say, hold on, I've got your best interest at heart. It's a wonder you don't end up somewhere near where they ended up. Seemingly. Right. Yes. A lot of opportunities have come along. And yes, you could get paid as a consultant in some cases to do certain things and, and, and make money. And I think had the people who were looking out for them even been looking out for them, they would have set up a way for them to say yes. And you create revenue beyond the revenue that they normally made before he died. You understand? 
So, mm-hmm. so in many cases, if you weren't on a track to make this kind of money normally, if you were just Joe Jones bagging groceries at the store, but your second cousin was Prince, well, you know, I would have kept bagging groceries at the store and done my thing and just said, okay, well, let's make sure we just know what's happening in case something comes in over here. But you mm-hmm. got to play it real how you played it when he was alive. You know, because it's it's up to everybody. And again, maybe that's too much. Maybe that's playing it too real. But I just think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things missing on both sides when it, when you look back four years later and we're reflective on it. Yes, there's been tremendous opportunities, but there's been tremendous opportunities where even in the opportunities, there were tactical things set up sometimes for them not to make money. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Saying yes when you're an official heir has a whole nother green light to it that just because there's a wage there, some kind of money costs too much to make. So we don't know how the opportunity was laid in front of them. We don't know if it was transparent. Mm -hmm. I can best believe that it probably wasn't. Exactly. Okay, so so there's a lot of things where you can't blame people for not having the experience that they need to have when they're dealing with something like this. What you can do is just examine what's going on and say, okay, what do we do from this point out? What do we do since we all know this was wrong? How do we correct it as a as a group, as a movement? How do we make it so? And again, we're back to those those mystery things that we might not be able to solve. But I think part of it is on everybody acting as responsible individuals. So that's why I say if I'm willing to say, hey, you know what, for the. For what I'm about to say, because to some people, it'll be just Dave Hampton talking shit. Right. So I'll save them the ink for from typing that in the computer and I'll save them the ink from writing that in the press. I'm willing to pay some money for the right to say something. Now, see, that's what separates a lot of situations, because we talk a good game. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, well, you're you breaking no bread. Yeah. Yeah. Like, huh? Well, and I, th- I think that that when if people question why Dave Hampton would be in a situation to be able to say anything about any of this, um, they have to remember he Dave's the chief curator of the Miles Davis estate. So all the stuff that Miles Davis recorded in his life and all of the, Dave didn't mind, he, he would carry around a recorder, a pocket recorder all the time and record things and notes yeah, and, yeah. and thoughts. A lot of guys and, do. Yeah. And so all of that stuff has to be, so he works within an estate at the curation of all the audio recordings of Miles Davis. And not only that, but his, Dave's attorney is uh, one of the biggest estate attorneys for, for um, some of these uh, musician, uh, musical artists that have passed on. So he has experience in dealing with the ramifications of what happens down the line after someone passes. Wow. So... You know, I'm just listening to everything that's said and, you know, I'm glad we have some updated information. I just kind of feel like, uh, I guess, you know, some of us have a struggle just walking up to our employers and asking for a raise, let alone having to deal with, you know, millions of dollars in a, you know, an estate and trying to ask for something or figuring that out. So I can imagine how this yeah. uh, is, is dealing with them. And you're right. When you have something of value, yeah, the 
the wolves or even the saints or whoever the people are going to gravitate <laughs> towards you. <laughs> yeah. What a raise is one thing, Michael. Asking for what's yours right. is a whole nother thing. And I True. think that's where, and Big Sexy, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there's anything wrong with them asking for what's theirs. I think what's happening is you're, you're, when they, by the time they file right now, they're finally getting some legal ease to their game where they realize they can't address things in the press by just calling the press conference saying, oh, they're they're robbing us. You exactly. Can't, you can't do that. You have to you have to unfortunately deal with learning the language of business, which very mm. much is how to how to provide services and remain unsuitable. If you really want to know what it is, I mean, that's that's basically what all people in business are trying to do. They're trying to exchange services for goods or whatever and remain in the best unsuitable position they can and do as many transactions as you can without any kind of negative implications. I think that's uh, that's the goal. And that's why you see lawyers and all these things. Eventually, one day we might never need lawyers with the kind of law that's represented in some of these cases and how these things look. It doesn't make lawyers look too well because it makes them look all tricky. It makes them look like, oh, wow, they just each one of them just laid in here. And now they're just, oh, they got their money first, you know. And, yeah, that's that's part of what lawyers do. Purse first. First, yeah, first, first, and 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 uh, and again, it's it's man. I, I don't know any other way to, to say it. And big sexy, help me if I'm if I'm not saying it correctly. It just I don't know how the, people who are not lawyers can ever accept somebody who's so linguistically talented. They can take the very roof over their head. You know, again, I, I always circle this back to. The over or the underlying industry here, which is the record industry, you know, they've hired legal cats to do this to people, to creative people for dozens of decades. I just recently <clears throat> learned a little bit about John Fogarty and I ordered his uh, biography. I had no idea that his label did him like this. Th this has to be the worst one I've ever read about. You know, they, they took him, they kept all of his music, and then when he did uh, Center Field, they sued him for plagiarizing <clears throat> one of his own songs from Credence that he wrote. That's just predatory, man. That's just evil. And I understand from a creative standpoint, it's hard to trust someone because you got all these slick cats coming, all these people with all these billion degrees, let me take care of you. And most of them aren't looking to do that. They're looking to, you know, get over on you. So it's really hard both ways. Yeah. I wanted to ask you guys this question. I mean, it, how we're talking about business and things. And again, I, I don't know how much we know of this, but in terms of Prince and how he would deal with things, would they be more like, would he always speak through lawyers when he, I'm talking about when he would deal with you guys or would you guys said this is what it is and whoop whoop or like i mean was, was there was a whole legal lease on how he would deal with you or were things kept more simple it was always simple i mean i never had to talk about a lawyer 
Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. the thing was, and here, and then Scotty can attest to this. Well, uh, since Prince was the one that called me, my my dealings were always with him. It was never with an underling. Was never with a uh, any kind of secondary personnel. My my first dealings that set up everything were always with him. Conversations with him, and and very brief and to the point. And then he would pass it on to somebody to take care of and handle. And uh, usually that's how it was. And that's how it is with a lot of people that we work with. Scotty, you you know, the same way people contact yeah, you, you. know, It's the same thing. I because I'm uh, I've had the kind of career where people um, an artist will usually contact me through management or directly. And then I can strike the deal with either them or their management. And you you wouldn't believe how many artists are to strike the deals themselves because mm -hmm. they they look closely after their own money so they know what everyone's making and they strike the deal it's not left up to management and um so i, I typically i either strike a deal with management or with an artist um and in prince's case i struck a deal with him and i did not strike a deal with him uh when i was drum teching 90 through 94 those five years uh i was hired by michael bland and he brought me in and I, I think he even helped negotiate my salary back then. Um, hmm. But when Prince asked me back to engineer starting in 2000, I struck a deal with Prince um, in the NPG room. And and that that held. And then anything that was beyond that, I would just go to him if I needed some. Matter of fact, I, I don't think I've ever told the story. I negotiated with him for uh, getting business flights because that up until then, I hadn't been on business flights with Prince. And... Um, and anyone I would ask, whether it was Takumi or uh, Lynn, his assistant, or anyone, I would say, "Hey, I I need business flights. We're starting to go to, we're starting to work a lot here. I'm gonna I need business." And and um, we were going to Australia. That's what it was. And they all would they always would say, "Well, you got to talk to him, right?" Because they didn't want to be in the middle of all that. Real quick, so, what do you mean business flights? Uh, 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 excuse business me, flights sit in business class okay and when you're when you're dealing with flying to australia or to japan or even to europe and you land and the next day you have to mix um comfort is is a is um is a necessity it, we're in a business it's a business it's not extravagant um anyone you see on a flight who's in business class they're typically it's people who either fly a lot or are business people and um and uh so what i they all kept saying well, you got to talk to Prince about that. So I caught Prince uh, coming out of the MPG room, going headed for the soundstage. And I sort of said, hey, man, I need to talk to you about something. I'd like business flights to uh, from now on, starting in Australia. And um, he said, well, how can you put me on the spot like this? And I said, well, I asked your manager. I asked your accountant. I asked your your main guy here. And they all say to talk to you. So I'm coming to you. And he said, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the band does. I think they upgrade themselves. And I said, but I'm not negotiating for the band. I'm negotiating mm -hmm. for me. You always told me to make my own deals, which he did. He would say, we need to strike our own deals. And he, it was about an ancillary. It was about something else, like with, with the crowd and with your audience and things like that. But again, as I said before, he was always teaching. So I just said, hey, I'm not negotiating for the band. I'm negotiating for me. I get this from... Uh, as a matter of fact, I had just gotten done working with Madonna and I said, he said, yo, you fly business with Madonna. And I said, business class with Madonna. I said, yeah, she flies me business. And then he said, well, you're really putting me on the spot. And he walked away. And I thought, well, that was the end of that conversation. But then 20 minutes later, Lynn came up 
and put paperwork on my soundboard and said, way to go, Scotty. Way to stand up for yourself. And I looked down and all my flights had been updated. So clearly, if I had an issue, I could bring it up to Prince and he was amenable to listening. He, he listened and he reasoned with it. Um, he wasn't, he was, he was totally reasonable. I think he was completely reasonable. Um, the times that I think were unreasonable were, were not about money. He was, he always meant, or he always insisted that people get paid fairly for what they're doing. He believed in that. And he treated all of us well, as far as I'm concerned. And he wanted us to make more than we made as evidenced by me asking him, you know, telling him what I would have done if I were him uh in australia near the end i said well if i were you i would do this for my sound guy it's that kind of thing where you strike your own deal and you keep your word with it and i think he was great at it um he didn't have a a record company to sue him for his own song plagiarizing his own song because he he had his he wasn't the best business person in the world i don't think there's any as evidenced by no will and as evidenced by, I mean, there are a litany of things I could bring up, but I think he, his model was right. His model was be fair, be fair to me. Yeah. You know, I'll be fair to you and I, and don't gouge me. That's kind exactly. of what I mean. Exactly. He appreciated the fact when you uh, took into consideration cost in solving problems. I know for me during my time, that was one thing that, that uh, I made sure of. During the first parts of what we did, because I understood the abuse that had gone on beforehand when anybody had the role of being responsible for certain things. It was always an open checkbook, which inevitably ended up in owing large amounts of money. Some people outside vendors and sources possibly not being paid and bad reputation for the facility. See, so that all that whole DNA that had been laid out before, you have to try and undo. And part of the way you undo that is is by there's nothing wrong with fair profit. What's happening is if you go kick your legs over somebody's wallet and start put your fishing pole out and it's just open season, you know, you can't you can't do that. You can't disrespect uh, people in the financial sense just because you feel they have big pockets because they're famous to the world. You have to keep things on a relative fair place for the services that you're charging. And and there, there's a lot of abuse that had gone on. So there, there's the ways in which you can handle the relationship from the outset so that never happens. So, that, But but it's a, it's a choice you make up top, up in the front of the, the thing. And uh, I think he appreciated not people people taking into consideration what he's asking them to do and at the end of the day uh the service is being done without him uh, you know being charged exorbitant amounts of money you know? and, and i assume you're talking about specifically like the studio and, and well, i'm talking about studio or, okay. gear i'm talking about anything i mean i had seen examples of it all over uh in my first days there when i when i was allowed to just roam freely you know there's a lot of for for probably the first month and a half two months it was me whenever he was in town he was in town but it was me by myself inside of paisley park with all the records and all the the gear and all everything so i had to get used to it i had to read what was going on figure out what had happened before find out what it was i was dealing with that was real so i mean there was a point where dave 
there was a point where Dave, where didn't you put out those tables to show him all the things that had? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I put out. Uh, you know, he used to. People used to say, "Oh, he's paranoid." You know, uh, he would say, uh, "You know, people sabotage me. People put this and they did this." And I said, "Okay, well, we'll find out." You know, so probably about three months into it, I said, "Okay, I'm going to put everything I found out on the table, and we're going to go through and see." And I still have pictures of everything. Of just the thing I found, which was people had actually done things to some of the electrical outlets and other stuff that if, you know, had it gone one way, those things could have eventually caught fire. Now, let me ask you a question without naming anybody or anything like that. What an example. What do you mean? They've done something intentionally? I can give give one example for you. Um, In Studio A, because that was primarily Prince's recording studio. Um. Prince recorded his vocals very hot because he always recorded his vocals by himself. The engineer would leave and he would sing the parts by himself and he would set his own levels and he would set these ungodly high levels because he used to like to record things really in the red. Well, at some, some points it would actually fart out and it would actually distort. Um, Some of that distortion is beautiful and is part of the process of saturating analog tape. Other parts of it are unusable. So what, someone at some point i'll say did is they went to every meter on that board in studio a his ssl and they turned the meter up six db six decibels so when when it was reading a certain level it was actually lower than the level that it was actually reading Mm -hmm. so you can only imagine what jeff beck and sting and uh amy mann and and um and all these artists that recorded at Paisley Park in the mid '90s to late '90s, they would go back to Sunset Sound or or Sound City or the Hit Factory, and they would start to remix to mix these songs. And they go, all the engineers would go, "What the hell's going on? All these levels are super low." Hmm. Well, that so, so that was a way of them tricking Prince into feeling like he was getting more level than was actually being recorded. That is on purpose and intentional. That's like cheating and baseball by corking your bat if the bat breaks they're going to see it it's there's no accident there and so they corked that bat in studio A. when dave found out hey all these are off by six he even called me up to come in and said are you seeing what i'm seeing i want somebody to see this and i said yeah that's they're all wrong evenly and then you go back in the paperwork with the you know detective work and you find the paperwork that says we did this because of this that's just so he wasn't wrong about that prince wasn't wrong about that in, in a lot of cases yeah and then some, and Dave, th- th- sometimes it was just poorly done work that had had created problems, and the problems lasted year after year. There was like always a, hmm. a buzz on the left hand side of the console, and there was a, on Studio A always a buzz. You could change the master pod, you could do anything, and we had to do some pretty extreme things to find out exactly what it was. But we found out what it was. It was a poorly executed technical ground across the console the console was so big it actually came in four sections so part of connecting it together means you have to take some very thick wires put them together and create one common ground well they took the time to do this very sloppy what's called a solder pot where they just dip the wires in metal that's real hot in a pot and they hold them all together and they hope that it's going to take and then they pull it out and wait for it to dry and fuse um, and then that was the that they wrapped it up in electrical tape and buried it in the wall. 
So we we found what it was, cut it out, put a proper technical ground on there. Boom, problem problem alleviated. But that problem was there for probably a good 10, 15 years. Wow. Right. Um, And and so some of these things, they they just go to poor workmanship or, or somebody's trying to create a solution and trying to do it. But when you go back and look at what they were charged for the fix, it wasn't a fix and it was exorbitant amounts of money. So part of the thing in, like I said, in resurrecting some places like that is you have to do a whole CSI on every room and treat every room as an individual. And that's the point at which um, I found out, like even back to originally there were two studios, Studio B, was completed first, then Studio A. Well, Studio B was actually a Glenn Phoenix room. The original designer, the original studio designer from Westlake Audio, who made the rooms that Michael Jackson coordinated, Glenn Phoenix did Studio B. Okay, Glenn Phoenix was on this project. He had another engineer, uh, studio guy, who he sent out to be his, like, underling. And the underling saw the opportunity to talk himself into the lead role. Glenn is laid off. And then the new guy is brought in to finish Studio A. So Uh that is why Studio A and Studio B have distinctly different things when you take. And I've literally taken apart the walls. So it it looks like somebody similar designed them. But uh, Studio B is the original Glenn Phoenix room. And Studio A is, is the guy who came after that. Who who did these guys at that time? Who did they answer to? Like who was in charge of paper park? Oh my God! Who's that? Or is that open on some? And that well, that rotated. That rotated all yeah. the time. I mean, years and years ago, when I got there, it was Matt Larson, uh, yeah. who now works for an audio, uh, a live audio uh, console company. Um, for a long time, it was Mike Kranz. It was Takumi. It was Kirk. It was. And Ooh. what happens is, um, people that were coming in and out of their working, they would take advantage of the fact that there was a rotating. Uh, leadership and that's why stuff grew legs and walked out of there a lot of times stuff was just taken um that's why things were you know charged they charge exorbitant amount of money for things and people would go i don't know i guess we just pay them so prince was taken advantage of some of that was due in part in fairness was due in part to the speed at which you had to achieve results for prince so, you, Michael, have you heard of the, uh, the, the production triangle? It's called, it's cheap, fast, and good. They, what, what, it, what they say is you can never have all three. You can only have two. You want, it che- you, you want it cheap and fast, it won't be good. If you want it, you know, good and, you know, if you want it uh, cheap and good, it won't be fast. It, you know, it's, it's, it, you can never have all three. And Prince asked for all three all the time. And you, sometimes you just simply couldn't give him all three. So people would do work based on needing to get it done fast. And then other people did work based on top of that work. So you can see yeah. that by the time Dave, Dave got in there and Prince liked Dave when we, uh, and, and I don't even know if people know how Dave got involved there. We'll go into that as you're talking. Uh, um, so what, and I can come back to this by going into the story. <clears throat> I was roaming the halls at some point doing something. And I think the end, yeah, it was the end of December of 2002. And Prince kind of caught me in a hallway and said, um, Scotty, can you, do you know somebody that can get Paisley Park updated? Um, and, and I knew what he meant. He just meant the studios and get them sounding the way they should. 
at that point, I knew and I was aware of a low-end issue that they were having in Studio A. He couldn't get the low-end he wanted. Or he was mixing things and then he'd go out and listen to them in the car or he'd hear them on the radio and it was way, just way too much low-end. Um, he And I said, without even hesitating, I said, yeah, I know just the guy. I, I said his name is Dave Hampton. Um, and figuring I could, it was best to attach a name to something that Dave had done, I said, he built Herbie Hancock's studio in his house. He built Herbie's studio. He built a lot of big studios. And uh, Prince said, oh, is he a brother? And I said, yeah, do you know him? And he said, no. And I said, well, I, oh, okay. I didn't know that mattered. He said, well, I'm just trying to help out. And I said, oh, that's mm. cool. Well, yeah, he is a brother. And he's um, he's he's out of based out of LA. And he said, can he be here tomorrow? Well, I think it was December 30th. Or thirty. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. it was right at the yeah, end of the year, and and I kind of. I'm gonna stop thought, you just well, one second, just because I because sure. I know how you how how some of these listeners are. <laughs> I want you to be clear. When he said, <laughs> "Was it a brother?" He yeah. meant he's a black man. So just That's exactly that, what he was let saying. Let that resonate there, yeah. so I don't have no yeah. problem. Yeah. Oh no, I yeah. think he meant was he here, but no. I'm yeah. a translate. No, what not a Je not a so, Jehovah's Witness or exactly, anything like that. He so. meant he meant was he black. And I said, yeah, I didn't know that mattered, but yes, he is. And, and he said, well, I'm just trying to help out. So what, what Prince was always looking to give people opportunity, and you found out about this a lot more about him after he died, when you see the things to which he gave his money and the things he supported, with way under the underground, just wouldn't, didn't ask for any uh, thing like that. And he, so he was saying, do you know, is he black? I would like to give somebody an opportunity. And I said, well, yeah, he is. Then he said, can he be here tomorrow? And I said, um, I don't know, I'll call him. And I think, Dave, I think you came on the a day or two later. You came like the 1st or 2nd of January in 2003. Yeah, the 2nd. Yeah. The 2nd of January in 2003. So I picked Dave up at, at the airport. We dropped his stuff at a hotel. Um, I drove out. It was just Takumi Prince at Paisley Park. I texted Takumi, said, we're coming in. He said, Prince will meet you at the uh, end of the hall in Studio A, the little courtyard. So I parked and Dave walked in, or we walked in, Prince opened the door and in, in pure, super Prince fashion, right? Because he had it so hot in Paisley Park and it was so cold that day. When he opened the door, natural smoke just emanated from behind him. It was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> he's, and it's, he, he couldn't plan yeah. it more appropriately so yeah. smoke comes out and prince reaches his hand out and shakes dave's hand and said come on in yeah <clears throat> and um, black black leather gloves mind you black black outfit yeah yeah <laughs> and he said um i said hey this this is my friend dave this is my friend prince and and dave they shook hands and then dave said the first thing dave said which i think dave we haven't talked about this i think it left a huge impression on prince dave said I understand you wouldn't be comfortable with me taking photos of your studio. Um, I, but I wonder, I like to take copious notes when I walk around. So would you mind if I took notes? And Prince said, no, not at all. And Prince looked at me after Dave said that to him. Prince looked right in my eyes and smiled and turned around and started to lead us in the building. So right away, Prince mm -hmm. had that blink moment of this is somebody who is paying attention to me. That's something that I've always, when Dave and I go and speak to uh, give master classes and talk to people. We we look for the people that are writing things down and taking notes because they're always the ones that are going to excel because they're actually taking the time to show you the respect that something you say is is worth writing down. We Dave, that would 
I don't know, that day was at least six hours long. Did he walk, he walked <laughs> yeah. us around for six or eight hours. And one yeah, of the first things later. we did, we, we went into Studio A <clears throat> and Dave listened for a little bit. Prince said, I'm just not getting the low end. I think I should. And Dave made a, made a couple of minor tweaks. He literally, Dave said, Scotty, grab the other side of that couch. He identified a problem right away. I mean, it would be academic to Dave. You know, he just said, well, it's this and this and this. Dave, we carried a couch outside into the hall. Dave went in and looked in the, the amp room, um, made some adjustments on the amp and possibly the crossover and said, try it again. And Prince pushed it up. And that had been a, a few hours into the visit. By that time, as soon as Prince listened for a minute, you could tell he understood that it was better. Hmm. He asked Dave to excuse himself. <clears throat> Dave went out in the hallway and Prince said to me, um, can he stay? And I said, well, how long do you want to have him stay? And he said, I don't know, probably like six weeks. And I think you ended up there like probably seven years, six, seven yeah. years. Yeah, wow. seven years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. so that, so, <clears throat> and part of that process is for Dave to, um, identify what had done, been done before, uh, and not throw stones, but just, <clears throat> excuse me, simply identify what had been done before and improve upon it. Yeah. And just make the studio work, fix everything. And then, uh, the other stuff kind of just blossomed off of that because, um, I was kind of on target for the, the six weeks and was not looking at anything other than knocking it out the park because I didn't know when he was going to come back because automatically you guys went to L.A. and started in for uh, musicology yeah. stuff. Dave, so, I, mean, I know you've probably said this before, but backing up to when Scotty called you about this, what was yeah. your impressions at that point? Like, what were you thinking? Um, I I was... I wasn't taking it serious. I was I was just thinking, well, it's cool. I finally heard from Scotty after all these years. Uh, we had said goodbye on Maxwell. And I maybe talked to him and Magoo and some other people maybe once or twice. But, you know, when people say, oh, I'm going to call you, you know, yeah, you never think that that call is going to come. I, th I think also for me, I think I've told you before, I was not uh, overly excited about a Prince uh, experience. Uh, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm 12 years with Herbie. I'm working with all these jazz guys. I'm cool. I'm 44. I'm pretty okay with where I'm at if I just stay in the jazz community and, and live out my time as an old man. You know, mm. uh, wasn't really, you know, we do a lot with Herbie. We did a lot technologically, but I really felt at that point. I know one of my complaints to Herbie was nobody ever used a third of what I knew. Right. And I felt like I had all this experience, but I never got a chance to use it. And no sooner did I say that when uh, I go down here and, and all, I thought Prince wanted the latest and greatest technology stuff like I was doing with Herbie. On the contrary, he wanted everything I knew about the early days of recording. He wanted analog. He wanted all this. He wanted to just bathe in all this uh, antique experience and uh so that was that was refreshing, but it, it certainly was challenging for me because I had to now pull up all this very thing that I was complaining about. Nobody ever used a third of what I knew, you know. And uh, so it was it was it was cool. It was exciting. But I, again, I was not the on the on the train of oh wow, I'm going to go work for Vince. No, <laughs> I, I, I was not. You know, I mean, I, I think I, I thought Herbie yeah. had to talk you into it. As a matter of fact, yeah. Well, I, we were getting ready to start. Uh, a record the very next week we we're starting possibilities and i said uh 
I said, yeah, I got this call. Prince wants me to come talk to him in Minneapolis. Uh, can I, you know, I know we're getting ready to start the record, but it, can I, I'm, I'm, is it okay for me to step away? He said, man, you better go. I would. So, <laughs> so, you know, when he gave me the green light, I was cool. I was, I was cool. I, I think I called one other person that was Dr. Shaw, who's a old music mentor from, from way back. And I said, George, I got this, this call. And he said, you know, and I've been there whenever I've gotten a call, I've, there's only a couple people I call to say, Hey man, should I do this? And, um, he was one of those people. And he said that Dave, he said, many are called, but few are chosen. You better go, mm. you know? Mm. So, so with that, I went and uh, I just, um, you know, was trying to listen, you know? And again, I had had such a positive experience working with Scotty, Michael Bland, uh, Magoo, uh, Robbie, uh, Alan Leeds, and you know everybody dealing with Maxwell. That I didn't have any. You know, I knew Scotty wasn't going to lead me into a hole and push me, mm -hmm. you know, over a cliff. So, so uh, but I knew it was going to be interesting. I knew it was going to be probably intense, you know. Because that's, that's the kind of situation it is. Yes, yeah, very intense. It's very intense because uh, at that point, when when you're dealing with it one on one, when when Prince comes to shake your hand and says, "How are you, Mr. Hampton?" I'm looking around for my father because that's who Mr. Hampton is. I'm going, <laughs> <laughs> and then inside myself, I'm going like, "Wow, this is Prince." Wow, he got leather gloves on. This shit is like, you know, he's like, he's dressed up. You know, it's like he's coming to you out of a video because at this point I have had no Prince experience. So, um, but again, I'm older. So uh, I'm just having all these thoughts as a 44 year old service person, you know, mm -hmm. trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to do this? And is, is there something here that I can do? Can I affect change? You know, and I, and that's how I look at every client, you know, what is it I can bring to this that will help them? I'm not thinking because I'm not the fastest because I'm a little bit older. I'm not, you know, uh, if you want somebody who's quick or all that, but that's not what, what was needed. You know, what was needed was to figure out could this facility do, in fact, what he always wanted it to do in that in that time. You know, and, and little did we know that that whole Thing we were doing was setting him up for this last big creative period of his life. We didn't know that. We mm -hmm. were just trying to answer a need, you know. And this, and and when you come in, you also bring in eventually a another crew of engineers and yeah, as well. Yeah, right? I did, I did, I did, and part of that, part of that was on me because at the point where I realized this is going to grow beyond six months. And he's asking me to be responsible for this, this, and this. He knows a little bit more about my background, so he's asking me questions that, that go wide. I need to, to figure out what this is that we're doing. And the minute it turned into, okay, you're going to be director of the facility. We, I want to be able to record. I want to be able to say, okay, I need to hire a person. I need to do this. Here's the bandwidth I need. And, uh, you know, it was up to me at that point. So at, at that point, I was been I had already been listening to everything that had happened before all the recordings from before. I knew some of the engineers who had been there before had listened to all the music. But I knew if we're going to be recording, that means potentially what we're doing is going to be part of this man's historic record. And when you're working with iconic people, it's like, OK, what has he not experienced? And at that point. 
he was going into musicology. And so everything he talked was talking about was ology, education, you know, a lot of conversations about passing things on and teaching this and funk music and, and you know, just the Amer- the American soul music story and that whole thing. And so that's what gave me the mindset to bring in different engineers who had engineered from different segments of the American soul music experience, you know? Okay. So that's why some people had experience with Tupac records. And that's why some people had experience with We Are The World. And some people had experience with jazz records. Some people had experience mm-hmm. from Motown, you know, because it was intentional. Because, did it, you know, if I look back, well, there was never a time because, you know, black artistry typically in the music business at a high level had never been curated where you have a whole lot of, of uh, trying to say this in a way where it doesn't ostracize the whole audience. Well, up historically in the, in the music business, you had never had uh, a large uh, assembly of African-American engineers to deal with African-American talent. Specifically, a high caliber talent like this. You, mm-hmm. you know, yes, Femi had been there, but he's one guy. But now we had a whole team of folks specifically mm-hmm. designed to do nothing but handle his music. So that had never happened in his career. So I was trying to create something that would be a page in his career because his career has seen many things. But when he's talking <laughs> about musicology and he's talking about funk music teaching and he's talking about this is what I want the record to be. And that, you know, and even down to the tours, you know, the way, the way everything was set up, you know, and Scotty can tell you, you know, that that you got Maceo, you got, you know, Mm -hmm. every time they go into a song, they're teaching a part of the American soul music journey. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And so you have to break it down like that. And when you look at it like that, it becomes more than just, Hey, I like that song. It becomes part of his intent, which he always Mm -hmm. had. Mm-hmm. And and it goes part to it's not a surprise to us that when he passed, they turned it into a museum because we we all we were part of that, too. We saw that we constructed that, you know, part of bringing Paisley back to life was creating this arena that everybody now plays in and says, oh, let's go take a tour. Right. So that's why sometimes I, I don't have to go. I haven't been in a long time. I don't have to go because, you know, if you planted the, the grass in the Rose Bowl, you ain't got to play football every week. <laughs> right. So I pioneered this. <laughs> yeah, man. So so uh, that's another reason why sometimes I get very uh, intense and passionate about the whole issue of Paisley Park and all the other stuff, because having been there when it was on mothball and trying to figure out how we're going to do this, this, and this, it's interesting to watch everybody squab over it in the aftermath. Hmm. You know, I can it's imagine. Like, wow. I can imagine. So, you know, so that's why sometimes I have to stand back because it's like, wow, these people don't realize it could have gone a whole nother way. Now, well, and not, the, and, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I just want to say that, that, that what shouldn't be lost either is Dave had to quickly develop a relationship with this structure with Paisley Park as a building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he had to get to know it so that he could not only work from within it and make it better for the artist that was there, but also he had to get to know all of its personality and all of the actual structure and what it's about. Nobody knows that 
the way Dave did. I mean, we we would from down to the point where where all those rehearsals and things in the in the uh, soundstage over the years and movies that were shot there, and all the smoke that was in there, and nobody had ever bothered to change the the HVAC filters. And you have to run HVAC f- uh, filter tests uh, 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 tests every month. And keep things up to code and make sure door seals were cleared and make sure uh, fire extinguishers and make sure everything's up to code. And Dave had a relationship with this um, facility itself that was in support of an artistic endeavor. And what people don't realize also about uh, the, the job and what Dave did there was that every time I came there, whether we were on tour or not, and whether Prince, I would hear Prince is in Miami or Prince is in L.A. and I would drive out to Paisley Park to meet Dave and we would go over some things or work on something. Candles were lit. The studios were ready. Everything was always set up for Prince to walk in that minute. Always. All the Mm. time. It was always set up because not only was Prince shifty and he could just show up at a moment's notice, but Dave, the, the thing that Dave instilled in all of us was to be prepared and be ready and be it, like a firehouse. It was more like a firehouse than anything else. It was always ready for action. Wow. Wow. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Now, there's a whole other... I always want to ask these other story of Dave, because Dave, you you had... Uh, you know, when you brought in those people... Um, I'm trying to... How do I navigate into this? <laughs> that sound crazy. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. No, it's fine. But, uh, I mean, uh, what's the young lady that... The engineer that worked... That was no, Lisa. Lisa, oh, Lisa. Yeah, yeah, now she's yeah. done interviews and stuff, but I always, uh, I just think it's great. Like, there's always these stories that blossom, mm-hmm. uh, things that blossom out of things that we work at. And, and this ain't probably the time for it right now because of time, but I would really love to get both of you guys together <laughs> on the podcast. Yeah, see, yeah. And, and, and talk about this. That's I think a, that's, that's a whole, like, you'd have to get the I, whole team because I'm they sure. can tell you. Yeah, okay. I, I, you know, for me, I, I was just impressed. She wasn't supposed to be there at all. Uh, uh, actually, Takumi had a friend. We were we were stress testing the studio, so Paisley Park up until that point when it was just two studios had never completely run without problems, right? So at this time, we had Studio A bit fixed, Studio B fixed. We had rebuilt Studio C. We had created Studio D, and we had created an edit suite, a video edit suite with final cut in the early days of final cut uh so i got this crazy idea to stress test the studio so i called morris and i said morris let's fill every room with people and let's take some sessions and we'll put some mistakes in the sessions i've got all my guys running the major studios but in all the little rooms studio c studio d and the video edit we're going to test all these people in their skill level to see if we can find some local talent you know mm-hmm. and uh so we we implemented this whole day of running paisley nonstop in all the rooms studio a studio b studio c to see if we could get it to crash see if we could get air conditioners to crash see if we get tape machines to crash pro tools to crash anything to mess up so that we could say we got to go fix this we got to go fix that um we had studio c we had takumi had a friend who needed a gig he had some skills he didn't call he didn't show up so we had a whole studio with a session and an artist in there and no engineer and and uh, morris was able to call lisa she came down and then she went right into studio a because she only thought studio a was working 
So she walks in the studio A and she sees everybody in there go, oh, y'all got started without me. And I'm like, mm, no, you know, here's here you go over here. So I took her to Studio C. She got started with the guy in there and ended up doing the session and everything was cool. And uh, just but just was very efficient. She found the problems right away. She always, you know, everything she did, she did quick and thorough and had notation. And it was just a pleasure to watch. And so I was like, okay, this is cool. And all along in me studying what was going on, I had always studied the fact that the majority of his big hits were recorded by some of the top female engineers. So I said, Mm -hmm. man, the only thing we don't have is a female engineer. We, We really need to have one on this team. But I didn't know that she had been trained by most of the people who started out there with Prince. So she had gone to this school that had been opened up by some people that uh, Tom Tucker, who used to be Prince's engineer, Tom Tucker, and she was the valedictorian of the first class. And so she was taught engineering and production by Paul Peterson. Okay. So, so, you know, so they basically, you know, if you could get a ringer, that was a ringer. So she, she was coming in with more chops than most of the other guys that were showing up that day. Uh, but she really knocked it out the park and so it was good and it was a good mix and, you know, she just was super competent. I think the next gig that I gave her to test her was to rewire studio D, which was an entire room I had built that was formerly a tape closet. And, uh, she rewired it, put a patch bay in there, figured out all the schemes for, for everything that had to go on in the room. And then, uh, put it online and later on i think that's the studio d is where he did the uh, song for happy feet so uh, song the studio c and d were smaller production rooms and the reason why i built them was because at that time a lot of younger artists were coming up and they were using programs that, that were daw based so they were using uh Mark of the Unicorn, they were using Logic, they were using all these other things. And Prince's main medium was two-inch machine. Hmm. So everywhere where we had a DAW, we had a two-inch machine that was able to be hooked up as well. But I wanted him to understand that the environment that many young artists come up in today is not the awe and wonder of a big 99 input SSL. Mm -hmm. It is a very small room, no bigger than a bedroom. Right. But we had we had kind of we had kind of hot rotted the rooms. You know, Scotty had a lot of uh, input for me because I was developing a, a profile of what I thought he was looking for. And because I was getting this active feedback from Scotty and them on the road, it helped me really like Studio C. I remember Scotty sent me some. Uh, what are they? D and B mains and i and i redid the mains in studio c so i actually speakers put, so i sent i sent yeah, live PA, live PA, PA speakers that you wouldn't usually have in a studio i yeah. prince is such a prolific live artist and he listens so well in a live setting um we sent live speakers to be installed in studio c yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. and and then and you know my my thinking there was that i was like man he's always asking for this he's always asking. i said man i think he he wants to play everything he records i said give me give me the best thing you got for for if he walks in a room and it sounds like the stage so i wanted him mm. to get the power of the stage in the size of control room. well this control room was barely uh 12 by 12 room right so you can imagine it, it got very loud, very fast, but he really liked going in there and being able to 
have that in your face volume to be able to move the air. And that's part of what it was, too. He's so used to this performance thing that you always have to have that element in the control room. You have to have it be able to be overdriven to the point of where he's feeling it, mm. you know, okay. especially since you got to understand the 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 sound wave story inside of music had changed from the beginning of his career to the point of where I came and we were redoing the control rooms at the point where I came uh, somewhere along the way, somebody had tried to add subwoofers to his control rooms, but they didn't do it properly. So they just basically took some subs and they set them out to the middle of the floor. So now you have the subs in the middle of the floor, the speakers in the wall behind them. So those two things are occurring at two different times. You have a control room that was designed in the 80s when there were not high-performance, low-end-driven control rooms. Music was not like that in the 80s. We didn't have the impression that, that R&B and hip-hop had left where we've got to have these tremendous 18-inch subwalls in every control room because Dr. Dre had done it, and that had changed the, the face of production. So all these things had had a, an effect on how much bottom end somebody like Prince wanted to hear in the control room. Hmm. So that's part of what went into delivering him like a sonic picture for where it was going. We had to adapt control rooms that were designed for the eighties, you know, and that's, that's, that's a very real thing, you know, and that's, that's one of the things that, that's one of the things I miss. If I was, there, if I, if there was anything that Scotty and I would be able to do, it would be able to go to Paisley park and explain to people the evolution of the control room and, and listening as, from a, from a live standpoint and listening from a control room standpoint, because it would be so easy to have people understand how he could do some of the things he could do because mm -hmm. we, these were the conscious decisions we made to, to be able to flip this and make it go. So, I mean, even Scotty, like uh, when musicology first started, remember we redid a lot of the sounds and, and we did some things so that the listener in the audience at the arenas had a different reaction because Scotty could come spend time in the studio and listen and say, okay, cool. We need to do this, this, and this. And I, you know, I don't know if you got a chance to do that on any, any of the projects where you can actually go in the studio and kind of redo some things so that the audience has a better show. You know? Well, typically, typically I deal with stuff when it's already done and recorded and I get tracks, especially for playback. Uh, we get tracks um, and there's a playback engineer live that that plays back the click tracks and all the the tracks that you would have an orchestra or you'd have uh vocals and things like that and they're all timed and they're all done to time code prince didn't operate like that um it took morris hayes a, a lot of time and it took dave and i a lot of time to go through these sounds comb through them and then uh, rescue them from the vault literally spool up the tapes and get the sounds off the records so that it sounded exactly like it did it sounded in concert the exact way it did in on uh, on the record. And Dave was one of the first people in the whole industry to do playback. I think it was Dave and another guy named Mike McKnight, who were the very first couple of guys, or maybe two or one more guy than that, that did playback in a live situation where you're hearing parts from a records mm -hmm. um, in a live situation. And, um, and yeah, to have that luxury to go in, uh, it's a you know prince's whole catalog was in that building so we could go and get the exact things that um that were being used on the record and and 
facilitate those so that they came live is a big deal because um, uh, we you always want the fans to have the experience of, especially with Prince, he was, he was a legacy artist, meaning he had a, a catalog that was so large um, that he would uh, play tons of these old songs and you'd want them to sound like that. And so I would go to Prince and say, hey, we'd have a, a conceptual discussion. Say, how do you want this to sound? Do you want it to be aggressive? Do you want, you know, he's like, oh, when you were mine, I want when you were mine to sound just like it did on the record. So I, okay, great. Mm. So I put this little doubler on his guitar and made his voice sound the same way. And, you know, there are ways that I can mix it out front to make it sound just like the record. And then other times he would say, no, I want, let's do Little Red Corvette, but I want it to be, um, what did he want? Edgy? He didn't say edgy. He said he used some descriptive that, um, and Kip used to, Kip used to sing uh, the beginning of Little Red Corvette before Prince started his vocal. And he just wanted it to have a different vibe to it. And we could do that. We can man manipulate um, manipulate what we had in the studio so that it worked very well live. And you could only do that in a facility like Paisley Park where Dave set it up to uh, to have that sort of speed and accuracy that of using the uh, stuff that was in the vault. I'm going to ask you one question about that, and we're, we're going to wrap this up. Wow, we could, we could go... Well, we could go in on this topic, but just to go back to this real quick. So I was curious, how are things in terms of the note taking and the um, cataloging of, of the material? So if you had to go find when you were mine, let's say he wanted a sound off of that. Would you were going to the two inch tape and loading that up and putting yes. these things? Interesting. Yeah. In most cases, yes. Um, what I had the, the most experience with was um, I worked a lot with Sign of the Times those uh, mm. masters because I had to put those up and grab. He did all sorts of cool different things with the Lindrum machine. And um, a lot of that you couldn't really replicate unless you reprogrammed it. And it was a lot easier to just go back to the tape and grab it the way it was. So it was more accurate. Um, but How yeah, was that catalog? I mean, so I mean, was, was there a section that was just sign at times and it had the reels for all the songs laid there? Or did you have well, to well, the, figure them out on different places? The, the the vault at at certain points the point at which Dave started it was sort of a mess everything was sort of everywhere and Dave started a cataloging system that um, that we could then say oh I need this reel from I need this tape from this album and everything was easy to find it wasn't always that way um, mm -hmm. but certainly if anyone looks at the photos uh, after his death and then they have a bunch of photos of the vault you can just look at those photos and it's sort of um, because he had to access different things at different times very quickly, it never got, and there was a changing of leadership and access to the vault with different engineers and different uh, facility directors, that things got sort of out of whack. It's just people would bring in their own priority. So you had to, we, it was, it was rather easy though, when Dave was there for us to go and access certain things. Wow. Wow. Okay. And then in hindsight, of course, you look at the vault and you say, wow, this, this great thing that Susan Rogers dreamed up and that Prince bankrolled and where it was protected and it was climate controlled and all these, you know, you look at that and boy, what I wouldn't give to listen to all this stuff. I mean, all that um, hindsight gives you a, a different, gives one a different perspective than the actual moment of saying he wants to play the song um, Housequake. We need to go down and get all these samples from that song. It's just, it's so immediate then that most of what I did was very immediate because we had to do it when he was inspired. Um, Dave had a little more, a longer uh, amount of time to work on things. Things were protracted. Things uh, things in the studio are always expected to take a longer amount of time. Although yeah. in, in, in Prince's world, they were very fast because he tried to do a song a day. You never spooled up the same tape again. You just sort of did a song. Mm. Um, yeah. But um, 
And we have to, I hope it comes out. I hope this tape comes up and plays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's what we had then. See, with Scotty, because he had done that time there earlier, he could go and say, oh, yeah, I'm just going to get it off like he used to do in the back in the day. Uh, when he would bring up something, he said, well, bring up this tape. It has something on track 12 I want to get off and, and put on this. It was like, okay, I hope it comes up. You know, and if it didn't come up or it gave us some uh, some trouble, then it was OK. And he asked for another tape. So, you know, it, it was he and he had a pretty good memory as to what was where, even though there might not have been much notation on it. So um, a wow. lot of it were just un unfinished ideas that he would felt like using on other things. And he felt like it was he was he was getting a conclusion to it many years later. So he would just call for it. Wow. Wow. Now sometimes all of that he stuff. Would go, yeah. Sometimes he would go down and pick it up himself, you know. Oh, okay. And this is all of the stuff now that is in Iron Mountain in, yes. in California. Okay. Yes. Yes. And that all came about really through podcasts that Dave did and his sort yeah. of yeah. leaving digital breadcrumbs for people to pick up on that and say, hmm. hey, what's yeah. this place, Iron Mountain, that Dave Hampton's talking about on this podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that is the yeah yeah i'll tell you this michael and i don't mean to cut you off scotty but i'll tell you this uh right when prince died scotty and i were together because we were out here working on a project right and part of one of my other projects had me at iron mountain building and some other stuff upon his death um you know they were like wow you know this is this is what's you know this is something that's just happened we don't know what's going on and you know they knew I had been there and they knew I'd done some stuff there. And I, you know, I honestly said, well, you know, if this should come your way, my suggestion is you develop a protocol and a way to deal with it because then that way it makes sense and it'll, it'll, it'll support the, the, the care and maintenance of it. Now they're just a storage facility. You know, Iron Mountain is just used for their storage facility capability at this point. There's another whole company that's actually was created and is charging for uh, the actual restoration and whatever remediation work that is being done or has been done on the contents of the vault. So right now, Iron Mountain has always had the capability since I started talking about them to do the entire job. But for the most part, what, what Iron Mountain services were sought out for was just storage. And then as soon as somebody saw a, a way they created, okay, well, they don't have to do that. We can do that, you know? And, and so I think part of that, it was one of the first uh, monetization. So automatically back then when the tape first went to Iron Mountain, Iron Mountain kind of took a black eye because People thought that, oh, wow, the tape shouldn't be out here, but they didn't know they're just being stored out here. There's an actual another group of people that created a service just to deal with the restoration and, and working on the, on, the, on the contents of the vault. So, okay. again, these are those details that, that we're talking about, uh, Big Sexy, where people don't know the, the intricate things. What they'll know is what they read in a publication because a lot of the misdirection in this whole situation has been trialed by media, right? Somebody oh, unleashes yes. something through a lawyer or through somebody else and it gets into print and it gets up on enough news services where the entire community buys it as fact. And, and that's kind of what happens in a lot of this is that there's a lot of things that are lost 
in the details. But I can honestly tell you, I specifically told them, if this comes your way, you need to be ready with a protocol. Well, a protocol is just a way you're going to deal with the eventuality of something coming your way because it may or may not need deeper care and maintenance. You know? And that's just me being observant and being somebody who uses their service for other clients. So I just felt like it was the right thing to do. And I told them this specifically, excuse me, I hit my mic. I told them this specifically because I, uh, my words were whether or not I have anything to do with it or not shouldn't matter. What matters is that it's handled properly. And the reason why is because that to me, other than the Library of Cong Congress facility in Culpeper, Virginia, there is no other place that these things should be other than probably Iron Mountain. Hmm. Those are the two number one places in the country. Yeah. All right. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I tell you, when these two young men get on the show, it, it take it to another place. Uh, so we'll, 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 there's going to be more opportunities. Come it's, back. Like yeah. it's like a filibuster. It's like a filibuster. Either that or when it's or when it's time for us to do a Patreon podcast yeah. Prince, you know, uh, a fundraising drive. You can have just Dave and I on, and we'll just go like Jer like Jerry Lewis. Like yeah, Twenty-four yeah, hours labor, of podcasting. Yeah, Labor Day telethon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I would like around, to do. I th I think your comments earlier, Michael. Um, I would be interested in doing a question and answer podcast. I think that would be fun because yeah. um, people yeah. can yeah. write in their questions because there are things that people yeah. want to know from Dave and myself and among others. Um, and uh, it might be good to see what people are. Thinking. You know what? We'll we'll do that. We'll actually do it. We'll do a video. We'll do it so they can actually see us, and we'll mm. get those questions live. Yeah. yeah. Good, and good big sexy, you got to do one called the heat, the legal heat. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want you to do one called the legal heat, man. And you could be the judge, and you could you could you could you can present all these legal sides because I think there's a lot of viewers who really do know a lot about the uh, the court cases and they've examined those records. And it's very, very helpful for me to just get a gleaning on what the community understands, because it's one of those things where we're so close, man. It's, it After a while, it becomes so much. Uh, uh, Scotty and I were just reminiscing the other day. We were we were in the parking lot of electric fetus yep. the morning that the. Uh, who was it? The district Carver attorney? County Sher Carver County Carver County Sheriff. Sheriff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Made his announcement they, they, yeah, 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 that yeah. there would not be um, criminal uh, criminal yeah. charges. Yeah. And um, in fact, he had picked me up from the hotel, the very hotel where Chaz was holding a press conference. And I remember going out the back door going, who is that? What's going on over there? Because mm. <laughs> I just wanted to get to electric feeders, you know? That was the you know, I, I saw you that you guys that was the yeah, day the, the meet yeah. and greet thing I believe yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so it was just we but we were just reminiscing about that the other day we're like wow isn't that something we were there right when we stayed in the car right when he came on to make his announcement you know but again that's how that's that that's that thing you know it makes for a lovely drama. <sighs> But the reality is that here we are, here we are in 2020, man, we got to figure that shit out and figure yeah. out what, it, you know, how well, are we going to come out of this and still be loving his music, loving the experience of just meeting all these new people who brought brought all together by, you know, his passing. You know? 
Well, all right. And shout out to Chaz. I, I think he has uh, something new announcement or something coming in a couple weeks or something. Uh, I don't have the date in front of me, but some sort of update on that situation. So hopefully it is the answer we're all looking for. We'll see. All right, Will, before we get out of here, uh, Dave, uh, where can people find you online? How can I get in contact with Man, you? Man, they can find me online. They can just write to, to Michael Dean with any questions they All got. Right. And, or, or, or write to Scotty, and then we'll, we'll meet you all somewhere at a coffee shop when Hilarious. this COVID-19 thing ends. Uh, <laughs> all right. I think we, did we lose Dave? Uh-oh. Scotty. Well, I'm Scotty. still here. Where, where can I find you, sir? Um, I'm I'm uh, Twitter at Scotty Baldwin, S C O T T I E Baldwin. Uh, I'm not super active, but um, I follow things through Twitter, and um, I think it'd be good. That would be a good um, a good uh, podcast. I'm putting the heat on you to, to, to <laughs> oh, do I that one. I, I, I love it. I want all the, the smoke. It's yeah. the heat and the, the smoke. smoke. Yeah, I want all the smoke. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Big Sexy and Sax, sir, where can they find you online? I can be found in my usual haunts, uh, Twitter, WSE Mark, Facebook, Mark Wiggins, Instagram, Mark Wiggins 2, and to honor our recently departed musician friend, Bill Withers, I'm going to be wearing out live from Carnegie Hall this afternoon, uh, because when classy. I was a kid, the cold baloney song, man... <laughs> Love that. Exactly. that. That album is quintessential live album material. It really is. It's good. All right. All right. I uh, know I was, was going to, I forgot to mention that you mentioned the name uh, Tom Tucker. Yes. To show how goofy I was back in the day, I, I must have saw his name in one of the credits of the album or something. And I was like, oh, I want to get to Paisley Park. So I called Paisley Park. I don't know how I got the number called them up and I asked for Tom Tucker. I was like, I thought that's how I was going to be able to get on. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm calling for Tom Tucker. <laughs> they were like, who are you? Like, oh, it's not nobody, but uh, I, don't, I don't think I actually ever spoke to him, but I, that, and I remember that name when you said it. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, see, hey, man, ain't nothing wrong with, with cold calling, man. That's good. Yeah, I was probably like, shit, still in high school or some shit like that. But Yeah, you got right to anyway. the source. Trying yeah. to, trying to. But all right, Google. Yeah, for sure. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Again, we definitely leave all of your comments and suggestions and notes. You already know what I'm going to say. Work it like a job. We'll see you next time. Peace.